And I'd like to spend just a few minutes looking at a passage from John's follow-up work. It's a letter that we know as First John in the Bible. Listen to what John says. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen him and testified to him, and we proclaim to you the eternal life who was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've actually seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make your joy complete. This is the message that we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, goes on purifying us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christmas can be quite a confusing time, can't it? Um, You've only got to watch a little bit of television or visit the malls to realize that because you have flying reindeer right next to the angels, you've got Father Christmas right next to the wise men, and when you're in the shops, you hear, hark the herald angels sing, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Silent Night, and Frosty the Snowman, all after one another. They all get lumped together until eventually the story of Jesus in the stable in Bethlehem is simply on a par with once upon a time. It's no wonder so many adults don't take Jesus seriously. When we discover at the age of 10 or whatever that the obese octogenarian gentleman in the crimson outfit doesn't have objective reality, and I'm particularly being vague here so as not to spoil it for anybody... But when we realize that the octogenarian gentleman doesn't have objective reality, then we conclude that the angels, the shepherds, the wise men, and the baby Jesus aren't real either. And so on the 26th of December, we close the book and forget all about it until next year. But in these verses, John is writing as an eyewitness of things that actually took place in time, in history. In verse 1 he writes, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. John is at pains to convey to us that all of this isn't from some fairy tale 
or from a galaxy far, far away. It really happened. John says we've heard, we've seen, we've looked at, we've touched. John's writing style here becomes a little bit repetitive and redundant, it seems, until you realize that the categories, heard, seen, looked at, touched, were categories of evidence in Roman law. John is effectively swearing an affidavit here. This actually happened. If you'd been in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, you could have banged your shin on the manger. You could have reached out your hand and felt the baby close his tiny fist around your finger. You could have smelled the stable. You could have stepped in the cow. Well, you get the picture. (laughs) All of this really happened. And not only could you have seen the baby in Bethlehem, as that baby grew up, you could have seen the things that he did and listened to the remarkable things that he said. You could have seen him heal a blind man. You could have seen him raise Lazarus from the dead, or that little uh, girl, that uh, synagogue leader's daughter. Later, you could have watched as he died on a cross. And three days later, you could have touched him to see that he really was alive again. John says, we saw it all. John's writing as a witness, but he's not a witness in the sense of, yes, officer, I saw the robber running away. He was wearing a red cap and blue T-shirt. John is a witness in the sense that for three years he traveled with Jesus and lived with him 24 hours a day. In fact, look at what John says. He says, that which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched. What's the difference between seen with our eyes and looked at? Well, John's speaking about a hard, intense looking and thinking and mulling over to the point where the penny drops. And John concludes, this man, my friend, is not simply a man. He's God. That's, in fact, the second thing that John tells us about Jesus, not just that he's a man of history, but that Jesus is a lot bigger than we think. Look at how he begins the letter, that which was from the beginning. John is consciously echoing the very first words of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. Not only was Jesus a man of history, he's also God from eternity. I don't know how many of you have uh, wrapped your Christmas presents already, but I I can tell you that wrapping Christmas presents on Christmas Eve is very dangerous, especially late at night. I don't know if you've experienced this, but you have to get your timing just right. You've got to make sure that you wrap all the presents before the last shop closes, and you have to do that. Otherwise, it's 11 p.m. on Christmas Eve, and you're about to wrap the last present, and you suddenly discover that there is no way you're going to get this backpack into this last piece of wrapping paper. I mean, you could have a degree in origami and not get this backpack into this wrapping paper. But here's the thing. In Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, all of God managed to fit inside a tiny baby. The Apostle Paul writes later in the New Testament, he is the image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, 
and in him all things hold together. According to John, then, Jesus is the God-man who appeared on earth. And why did he come? Well, the final verse in the passage, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole earth. I can imagine someone at this point thinking, here we go again, those Christians, they're so obsessed with sin. But you know, if we were to take a real honest and hard look inside ourselves, we'd have to agree with what John says here. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Someone has pointed out that if others could just read our thoughts, all friendship would immediately end. Never mind the other things that we say and do that would horrify us if they were put up on a screen for others to see. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian novelist who was jailed for criticizing Joseph Stalin, and he put it best in one of his books. He said, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart. And this is where the truth of Christmas and the Christian story becomes so important. Because look at what is offered to us in these verses. A number of gifts. Firstly, fellowship in verse 3. We proclaim to you what we've actually seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. God is light. We are darkness. But Jesus has come to bring atonement or at-one-ment. As the God-man, he brings God and man together again. And you and I then have the immense privilege of walking with God through life. As John puts it, we can walk in the light as he is in the light. God does this through the second gift that is offered in these verses, the gift of purity, verse 9. That if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Jesus lived the perfect life I should have lived. Not only that, but he died the death I should have died for my sin. And then when I trust in what he's done for me, when I confess my sins, he credits to me his perfect life, his righteousness, his purity. And that frees me to experience the third gift that is offered here, life. Look at how John describes Jesus in verse 2. The life appeared. We've seen him and testified to him, and we proclaim to you the eternal life who was with the Father and has appeared to us. I don't know what your response is when you hear the words eternal life. I remember hearing about a Sunday school teacher who asked her Sunday school class, what do I need to do to get to heaven? And one little boy put up his hand and said, well, miss, first of all, you've got to be dead. <laughs> or the mom who tried to comfort her uh, son by saying that your cat has gone to heaven. And the little boy saying, what, what in the world would God want with a dead cat? <laughs> Christianity isn't primarily 
about what happens when you're dead. John tells us in these verses that Jesus offers us a quality of life right here and now that then continues on into eternity. Jesus offers us life as opposed to mere existence. Someone asked the great Russian writer Leo Tolstoy, a former atheist, why he'd become a Christian. And he replied, I became a Christian in order to become more fully human. So often people run from God, convinced that he's going to ruin their lives and turn us into some kind of monk or nun. But God isn't out to spoil our fun. John tells us here in verse 5, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Jesus won't ruin your life. Exactly the opposite, in fact. He allows you to become the very best you possible, the you he created you to be. And this is a life of joy. In fact, all of the other gifts that we've looked at are characterized by this gift of joy. Verse 4 again, we write this to make your joy complete. Christmas is billed as being the most magical time of the year, but go into any large shopping mall today, and I think that while you'll see lots of activity and talking, maybe laughter, you'll see very little joy. You see, our level of joy at Christmas is determined by what it is that we are actually seeking. And in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper has this to say about joy. He says, it was not always plain to me that pursuing God and God's glory would be virtually the same as pursuing my joy. And now I see that millions of people waste their lives because they think those, are, those paths are two and not one. So in these verses, John points out who Jesus is, someone who John observed for three years, a person of history who is at the same time God himself points out what he came to do, to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And from that flows fellowship, purity, life, and joy. And our response to this? Well, it's the same as any gift at Christmas, that all we need to do is reach out our hand and receive it. We read a moment ago from John's Gospel that to all who received him, To those who believed in his name, believed he was who he says he was, that he came to do what he he said he came to do, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Receiving plus believing equals belonging. And all we have to do is say yes to Jesus. It will change the rest of our lives. I think that's important to say, that while the gifts of God are free in one sense, they cost us everything, just as marriage would, in fact, if you think about it. Suddenly you find that you're not free to make all of the decisions that you once made as a single person. Jesus becomes the most important person in our lives, our most important relationship. And that daily relationship is described in verse 7 that we then walk in the light, a daily walk of walking in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, goes on purifying us from all sin. It's always exciting opening Christmas presents, isn't it? 
because when you pick up the gift, you have no idea what it could be. It could contain anything. I think, though, that Christmas presents are more exciting for children, because children often get what they really want, whereas I get what I really need. Have you noticed that about getting older? When you were a child, if you were lucky, you'd get what you always wanted for Christmas, a bike, a train set, a scale electrics. Now, as an adult, I often get what I really need, underwear. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a sign that I'm getting older. I think that what is true of Christmas presents is true of Christmas itself. That what we want from Christmas isn't necessarily the same as what we need at Christmas. What is it that you're wanting for Christmas? Snow? (laughs) A good time with family? A good meal? That gadget you've always been longing for? Many of those things are, are good things. But what we truly need at Christmas is peace with God, through the atoning death of Jesus, fellowship with God, forgiveness, purity, life, and joy. And in fact, that can be ours as we sing our final carol. There's that wonderful last verse of this carol that says, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray, cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell, Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. If you were to sing that truly from your heart today, I guarantee you it would be the best Christmas for you ever.